Good morning. Well, we're going to resume our series of messages today on famous people of the Bible. So turn in your Bibles to Judges, the second chapter. Judges chapter 2. So in Judges chapter 2, a little background, a little context here. Joshua has just died. And so as you pick up the story in Judges 2, verse 10, it says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. To me, that's one of the most frightening verses in the Bible. I mean, yeah, there are frightening verses that warn us about the dangers of turning away from the Lord, the danger, you know, of spending eternity in hell, eternally condemned. But this verse is a frightening verse. A generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And it shows us just how important it is for us, for, for us to pass on our spiritual faith to the next generation. And, the, and it didn't happen there. It didn't happen in Israel with this particular generation of people. They failed in raising up that next generation. And listen, folks, it only takes one generation for that to happen. And it happened here. And so as a result, Judges, chapter 2 here, it starts this cyclical pattern of behavior by the Israelites where there is disobedience to God, followed by punishment from God. Then they would finally repent when things got so bad, and when they had truly repented, God would bring deliverance. But when they disobeyed, they began to walk in darkness. They stopped worshiping the Lord. They began to worship idols like the Baals and the Ashtoreth, things like that. And instead of standing out and being God's people in the midst of that pagan Canaanite world, they compromised. They began to blend in. And soon they became just like their pagan neighbors. If you read through the Old Testament and especially through, through Deuteronomy and other places where Moses is expounding upon the law as God is giving that to him, the Lord would say through Moses, do not learn to imitate the detestable practices of the Canaanites that I'm driving out before you. But that's exactly what these people were doing because they didn't raise up a generation of people behind them that knew the Lord. So in Judges 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Now, the Ashtoreths were basically poles that were put up in honor of a supposed Canaanite goddess. But the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth was clearly forbidden through the law of Moses. And particularly in the Ten Commandments, right? What's the first commandment? Thou shalt what? Have no other gods before me. 
in essence, except for me, right? Very, and, and so plainly the law forbids such things. But yet they did it anyway. So as a result, God would give his people over to be oppressed by other nations and other groups of people. He would allow them to come in and, as bands of raiders and steal their crops and their, their livestock and all kinds of things. And when Israel would go out to battle with them, God wasn't with them. In fact, God stood against them, and they were defeated time after time. And so when you come here in chapter 2 and to verse 16, four verses here that basically sum up the entire book of Judges. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And at least seven different times in the book of Judges, you see that cycle. Disobedience, punishment, finally repentance, and forgiveness or deliverance. At least seven times you see that. And so this is quite a pattern of walking in darkness for the children of Israel. But each time, God is going to use a judge to lead them back into the light of the Lord. And so for 400 years or so, one by one, a dozen people, 11 of them were men, one of them was a woman, and one by one they led the nation of Israel. Now when you think of a judge today, what do you think of? Well, you probably think of someone who walks into a courtroom in a long robe, takes their place behind a big desk or, or some, you know, the furniture that they set behind, and they sit there and preside over a trial. But that's not necessarily what you should think of when you think of a biblical judge here. Because back at this time, a little over a thousand years before Christ's birth, a judge was much more. In the Old Testament, a judge was, they, well, they were the political and the spiritual, and they were the military leaders, basically all rolled into one. Now, one of the earlier judges was a woman by the name of Deborah. And I would call Deborah a woman of influence. She was the most unlikely judge because she was a she. All right? I mean, she's a woman, and she's living in a man's world. And this was not common for a woman to hold such a powerful political office. They didn't lead nations. Women at that time usually were seen and not heard when it came to political things. But Deborah was raised up by God to be a judge among his people. And God used this woman in a powerful way. And how many times in this series have we seen God use people that you would least expect? From Abraham and Sarah, an elderly and fertile couple, to populate a nation for God? 
I mean, think of all the times where we've just seen God do the unexpected through unlikely people, and Deborah is one of those. But as we look at her life in Judges chapter 4, it says in verse 1, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. Sisera, remember that name, Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Agoyim. You don't need to remember that name. <laughs> because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Did it take 20 years? Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. So Deborah evidently had a close walk with the Lord, and in the Old Testament, it was very rare to find a woman that was called a prophet. In other words, she spoke for God. She would give God's message to the people. She spoke on His behalf. Well, in Judges 4, verse 14, Deborah is talking to her commander of the army, whose name is Barak, and she says, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Now, earlier in the conversation, you need to understand that when Deborah tells Barak to go, he says, I won't go unless you go with me. And she said, All right, I'll go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the hero of the story, in essence, then would turn out to be a woman. A woman would receive the glory here. And Barak, the commander of the army, is probably thinking, well, Deborah, she's the leader, she's the judge, she's our spiritual leader, I guess she's probably referring to herself. Somehow she's going to become the hero in all of this. But I want you to watch how things transpire, because this battle takes place, the Israelites have the enemy on the run, and in verse 17, Sisera, it says, meanwhile, fled on foot. Why? Well, they're getting their tails kicked, that's why. So they're on the run, and this powerful leader, the commander, leaves his troops. He's fleeing on foot, and he goes to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hatzor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. So in other words, he goes for refuge. He thinks he can hide out there, he'll be safe there, because this is a family that is friends with the king. So Sisera, the commander of the army, finally gets there, and he's exhausted, he's thirsty, he's running to hide, and out of the kindness of her heart, Jael gives him a place to stay, and she says, look, here's a tent. Just come into the tent. And wow, you look exhausted. And she gives him some more milk. And she says, I'm not going to tell anybody about your hiding place. And she tucks him in for a nap. What a sweet, sweet woman. <laughs> he falls fast asleep. And Jael, this housewife, picks up a long tent peg and a hammer. And while he's sawing logs, she starts driving nails. And she drives one of those pegs right through his head. And it's a graphic story, but it's true. The Bible doesn't candy coat that, the, the violence or the sin that abounds at times. And of course, 
Sisera dies. Well, sometime later, Barak and the Israelites come in pursuit of Sisera, and they think that he might have come to this area to try to hide out. And when they meet up with Jael, they said, hey, have you seen the enemy of God? Have you seen Sisera lurking around? And she says, yes, he's in my tent. He's in your tent? Yes, I killed him. You killed him? Sisera, you must be joking. No, he's, he's in my tent. And Deborah's prophecy and prediction had come true. A woman was the hero of the battle. <laughs> and don't you imagine that uh, J.L.'s husband Heber treated J.L. with a lot more respect after that? <laughs> and if they ever got into an argument and she said, oh, let me give you a little warm milk and you take a nap. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, I doubt if they ever went camping after that, you know, so... But Deborah was respected by her people. She spoke the truth. And God revealed to her that because of the fear and the reluctance of some of the men and the warriors that a woman would end up being the hero, probably everyone assumed that it would be Deborah the leader, the judge. But just like we're learning time after time, God's ways aren't our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He, he enjoys using the overlooked, using the forgotten people and in this case, he uses a perceptive housewife to kill this military commander. So don't sit there this morning and tell me that God can't use you. If he can use Deborah in a man's world and J.L. to kill a military commander, God can use any of us, any of us, if we're willing and available. Well, this trend of using the unlikely by God is going to continue with another judge some decades later. His name is Gideon. I would call Gideon a man of courage. Maybe not at first, but he ended up there. For seven years, Israel had been struggling through a period of oppression. The Midianites and the Amalekites were ruthless barbarians that were intimidating the Israelite people. And they would just come in and destroy their crops and steal their cattle. And so in Judges chapter 6 and verse 11, you pick up the story. And it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak and Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abiazrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, you didn't typically thresh wheat in a wine press, obviously. You do it where the wind can blow away the chaff. But Gideon didn't want to be seen by the Midianites and the Israelites were scared to death. I mean, the Midianites were like this ruthless gang of thugs. They would just come in and trample the crops and overpower the Israelites so badly that many of them had fled to caves and various hideouts to get away from them. And sometimes I think there are preachers that paint a picture of Gideon as being a very cowardly man. And that might have been the case at first. But in his defense, he was also a very practical man. He's a realist. I mean, he knows that he himself is no match for the vigilante tactics of the Midianites and the Amalekites. But in the midst of this story, God's going to move him from fear to trust. Look at verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> mighty warrior. That was a stretch. 
Gideon was a farmer who appears to be attempting to save his crop before the Midianites can steal it. But I do think that the angel of God is trying to encourage him and inspire him to be a mighty warrior. And true, he is a diligent man, but God's going to stretch him out of his comfort zone. And in verse 13, But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. So he's discouraged. He felt inadequate at the time. He, he was apprehensive because of his roots and because of his resources. I mean, his parents weren't powerful people of any sort. They weren't fierce warriors. More like the Rodney Dangerfields of their time, all right? They didn't get any respect. They were some of the lowest of the tribe of Manasseh. So how in the world would Gideon ever be able to, to lead or assemble a group of Israelites to follow him off to war? Well, you find the answer to that in Judges 6, verse 16. The Lord answered, I will be with you. I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites. Kind of reminiscent of Moses talking to God when God told him he would lead millions of Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. And I'm sure we know the objections and the excuses that Moses made. But God gives Gideon a test here in order to see whether or not he would be teachable and whether or not he was committed enough. And if Gideon truly trusted in God, this would be a good sign if he passed this test. So God commands Gideon to tear down his father's altar to Baal, his father's altar. Gideon's being asked to clean house in his father's front yard as a first step. And Gideon obeys. And when the men of the town hear that the altar to Baal and the Ashtoreth has been torn down and find out that it was Gideon, they go to kill him. So this was a true test of loyalty. And Gideon, maybe Gideon's thinking when he's asked to do this, maybe he's thinking, Lord, I can't believe this. The very first test you're giving me is going to involve my own family, my own flesh and blood. I think there's a lot of applications that we could make right here. If you are truly a committed Christian, there may be, well be times where you have to take a stand for God even in the midst of your own family. Right? I mean, the, to, to, to boldly take a stand for your faith. And sometimes that involves taking a stand with your family. It, it's not that you're not trying to ruffle the feathers of your family necessarily. It's not a matter of, uh, of trying to appear more spiritual than everybody else, spiritually superior to your spouse or to your brothers or sisters or to your parents. It's not your desire to make a scene at the family reunion, but... If you've chosen to be a follower of Christ, there may well be some tense moments when you have to be courageous and take a stand for God and for what the Bible teaches and for, for what you know to be true. And when those times come, don't be arrogant, don't be harsh, but you should be passionate and should be loving in the way that you convey it. And maybe some of you have 
for all intents and purposes, have almost been kicked out of your family because of your faith in God. Ostracized by family members because you became a Christian. And while I'm sorry that that's happened, I can't help but wonder if maybe God is testing you. If God may be testing you, and this is the first test, and He's preparing to use you in some incredible way. I mean, He was with Gideon. And God knew that if he could stand up to the pagan practices of his parents, right there in his own family at home, then he could become the person to stand up to the Midianites. So God wanted to see this step of boldness and then couple that with consistency. In other words, God's altar couldn't coexist with Baal's altar at the same time. Now Gideon's going to get a second test. The second test is much greater because God says to Gideon, go fight against the Midianites. And again, there's this specific assurance and promise from God, I will be with you and we will strike down the Midianites together. So Gideon calls the tribes of Israel to come in chapter 7 and he collects 32,000 men to fight in his army. 32,000 men, that's a whole lot of men. Except for the fact the Midianites had 135,000. In chapter 8, verse 10, it tells us that. So God comes to Gideon and he says, (coughs) hey, we got a problem here. And Gideon's probably thinking, no kidding, we got a big problem here. We don't have near enough men. And God says, no, 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 that's not the problem. Problem is you've got too many men. Too many men? you got to be joking. No, you got too many men. You need to pare it down a little bit. So here's what you do, Gideon. Go tell all the men that are scared that they can go home. And Gideon goes and tells them, and 22,000 men go home. And he's left with 10,000. And Gideon says, okay, God, how are we doing now? And God says, you still got too many. Take him down to the creek and let him get a drink of water. And observe how they drink the water. Whether they just stick their faces down in the water. Or whether they bring it up to their mouth. So that they can be observant as they take it. So Gideon does that. And God says now separate them in the way that they drink the water. And 9,700 men are released from service because only 300 of them took the water and brought it up to their mouth so they could be watching and on guard while they drank the water. And God says, now we'll go to battle with these 300 men. 300 against 135,000. Do you like the odds? 450 Midianites to each Israelite. 450 to 1. Pick it back up in Judges 7, verse 19. Gideon divides them into three companies of 100 men. And their weapons, pretty much like Joshua had, they've got a trumpet, like a shofar, something they could blow. They've got an empty jar, and they've got a torch inside the jar. 
And in verse 19, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets. They were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And so they've encircled the camp of the Midianites down in the valley. The 135,000 of them are down there. And those Midianites hear this noise in the middle of the night. And it throws them into chaos and confusion. And as a result, they get up and they think that they've already been invaded by the Israelites. That they're already right there in the camp. And so they start fighting each other in the darkness and killing one another off. Just swinging and trying to kill anything that comes their way. I mean, they wake up. They see lights totally surrounding them. They hear this shout. They hear these horns. And they think, oh my, you know. And the Midianites did the work themselves and killed each other off. And the few remaining Midianites that survived, they fled. And Gideon's army, all 300 of them, chased them out of town. And Israel, the Bible says, enjoyed a time of peace. What a story. 450 to 1, and yet they won. And then I hear Christian people say, you know what? I could never be used by God. Really? Have you read this story? Are you listening to Satan who's against you instead of the God that is for you? I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't do that. I could never do that. I, can, I can't get out of debt. I, could, I can't turn my marriage around. I, I could never share my faith with my, my boss. I could never. Yes, you can. What are you afraid of? Anything that feels like the odds are 450 to 1 against you? Even with odds like that, I mean, if God is with you, you've got nothing to fear. And God made Gideon continue to whittle down the size of the army. Why? Because he wanted to make sure that the glory would go to him. I mean, you learn again in the Ten Commandments, he's a jealous God. Which is why that first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And God wants to make certain that if there's a battle that is won, where the odds are 450 to 1 against you, he's going to receive the glory. Because it's not by power, and it's not by might. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. Using an unlikely man in an unlikely way. Using unlikely means. Incredible. Third story, and we'll hit it quickly. A third judge, you know him, his name is Samson. Some... Scholars have called Samson a he-man with a she-weakness. And that's a pretty good summary of him. But I would also call him a man of vindication. A man of vindication. And with Samson, we see God can do mighty things with just one man. And you see it throughout his life. I'm almost in spite of his life. Samson was so strong. So mighty, courageous, I mean a man's man, he was intimidating. He had a reputation for his strength because of how God works in so many different situations. God had empowered him. He was raised to be a Nazarite. 
So he's under the Nazarite vow, which meant that he could drink no alcohol, no fruit of the vine, not even eat a grape or anything. He would have no haircuts. He would never eat anything unclean or touch anything unclean until the day of his death. And he broke every one of those vows except the one concerning his hair. But the others, he stumbled at rather quick, quickly. But at one point, Samson wanted to marry a Philistine woman, an unbeliever. His parents tried to talk him out of it, but he refused to listen. He married her. Things got off to a bad start. And that was just one of many relationships that was rather different and wrong and sinful. But Samson would take on the enemies of God, particularly the Philistines. One time, he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Another time, he took up the gates of a city on his back and carried them out far off to another hill. But as strong as he was, his weakness was just as great when it came to women, particularly pagan women. In fact, the secret of his strength, though, was in the fact that at least he had kept one part of the Nazarite vow, that commitment to God, and his hair had never been cut. But his wife, Delilah, not a believer, gradually over time got the secret out of him. And if you read this story, it's amazing. You think, how could a guy be that dumb? Really, I mean, how could you be that dumb? But when we say that, we better evaluate ourselves. Because don't you think there are times where God has looked at us and said, how can they be that dumb? I mean, if, if whenever you get your eyes off the Lord, you can make some really dumb, senseless decisions. And that's what happened to Samson. So Delilah aids in the capture of Samson by giving him a haircut and the Philistines come, now he's weak, he can't fight them off. They take him captive, they gouge out his eyes. Samson's pride has been decimated, he's helpless, he's weak, he's broken. And like so many of us, that's when he turns to God and humbly makes one final plea. I mean, he's gone from being the incredible hulk to being a, a buffoon. And they make fun of him, they make sport of him, all of that at the hands of the enemies of God. And so he stands there chained between two pillars, desperately wanting vindication and justice for the enemies of God. And in Judges 16, 27, it says, Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. In other words, making fun of him. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me, O God. Please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all of his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. And thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. All throughout the book of Judges, you see this same cycle unfold. Disobedience, punishment, repentance, and deliverance. Seven different times. And of those seven cycles with the Israelites, each section begins with, with this phrase. Every one of them begins this way. 
Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every time they walked in darkness. And the Israelites had gotten pretty good at walking in the darkness. They'd become quite comfortable. And here's a judge over Israel, Samson, who himself begins to walk in darkness. Ends up losing his life because of it. But at least at the end, even though he dies, he finished well in that respect. Maybe you can see yourself in this cycle. If we're not careful, our walk with Christ will begin to imitate that of the Israelites. Earl Nightingale said this, You will remain the same until the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the pain of change. Interesting thought. How many of you like change? The older we get, the more stubborn and set in our ways we get. Yes, I saw you nudge Jerry, Cindy. <laughs> I was watching. But we're all that way, aren't we? The older we get, we get set in our ways. We don't like to change. But sometimes change is for the good. But he says you're going to remain the same until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. And I think he's right. We don't change when we see the light. We change more often when we feel the heat. And maybe you've been in a cycle of poor choices and sinful behavior. God can still work. It's, it's not finished yet. It's not over. Just like with Samson. God is writing your story all the way to the very last paragraph. And you may not be able to see it, but God can. And you might not have the strength, but God does. And you might not have the courage, but God will give it. You might not see a way out of it, but God will provide that way out. He did for His Son, Jesus. I mean, it was death for Jesus. But Christ chose that path so that we could conquer the grave. Because that's what He did. God delivered Him. Deliverance came and God won. And He can do the same thing for you. So if you're walking in that cycle of disobedience and God is disciplining you and punishing you, it's time to repent and experience the deliverance of God. But you have to want to make the change. And even when the odds are against you, the story isn't over yet. So learn some lessons from unlikely people who did unlikely things in unlikely ways, but who God empowered and used to bring Him glory because He can do the same for you in your life. I don't know what decisions you might want to make today, but if you have decisions to make, you can meet me down in front as we stand and sing. If you need to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, don't fear what your family will say. Let God be with you and experience His deliverance. Maybe you're already an immersed believer in the Lord. You're looking for a home church. We'd love to have you be a part of New Hope to join our family here. And I'll be the first to tell you that this is not a perfect church. Because I'm here and because all of you are here, none of us are perfect. But we want to do our best 
to serve God and be faithful to Him. If you'd want to be a part of a family of believers like that, we'd encourage you to come today. Maybe you just need to pray or, or surround yourselves with people who will pray with you. That can take place too. Whatever your decision, as we stand and sing.